This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. It may be the end of the financial year, but today on the show we won't be taxing your thinking too much because we have two super smart guests to do the heavy cognitive lifting for us. First up, we'll be chatting with Associate Professor Tom Kotsimbos. Now, besides being one of the most talented people I know, Tom is also a very broad thinker. In fact, in another era, he would have been a philosopher or an artist or a poet, but lucky for his patients, he turned into a physician specialising in cystic fibrosis and lung transplantation at the Alfred Hospital. Coincidentally, he's also head of infection and immunity, immunity research there too. True to form, Tom won't be talking just about his day job with us. He'll be chatting about what Doctors can learn from fine art in their practice in medicine. And let me tell you, it is an incredible journey with, uh, with Tom. Dr. Nick is one of those human beings I look at with envy. He's just got it all together. Not only a loved and respected GP, but a seasoned and intrepid traveller, author, cook, beloved father and husband, dancer, royal tennis player and champion, I note from his T-shirt today. The list goes on and on and on. He brings to his practice the kind of stuff they just can't teach at medical school. Wisdom and life experience. Now, did I mention he also wore skin-tight lycra dance pants to his recent birthday party? Legend! Today on the show, Nick will be chatting with us about herpes. Plus, we'll be playing a smidge of music and catching up on the latest medical news. So join me, Dr. Mel, practice and guests for the next hour of radiotherapy. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. No pills gonna kill my ill. I got a bad case loving you. Oh, that Robert Plant riff never gets old. Good morning, Dr. Nick. Good to see you again, Dr. Mal. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, Associate Professor Tom, how are you? I'm excellent, thank you. Great to be here with both of you. Oh, so nice to have you guys in the studio. Dr. Nick, medical waste has been on your mind. Yeah, a couple of things I just wanted to talk about this morning. Um, We had a medical student with us a few weeks back, misdiagnosis, um, and she was talking about medical waste with some really alarming statistics about how much environmental pollution comes from the health system. Uh, And that prompted a really interesting letter from a, a listener, Sonia, Um, saying, well, other people have been doing stuff about this and apparently the Western Health have been collecting vinyl, started off just collecting drip equipment and that sort of thing and recycling it. Vinyl? Yeah, not as in records. LPs. So no, it's the Vinyl Council of Australia, which VCA, which I thought was an acronym for something else, but apparently this is also people collecting medical waste and reusing it. And uh, this is now no, becoming quite a big issue with quite a lot of people doing stuff about it. So this is just advanced warning. We'll be coming back to medical waste in future programs because I think it's a really important area that we need to focus on. Yeah, it's not yeah. something that I've really heard much about until you uh, were mentioning it on the show. Well, interesting enough, if I could show you a photograph, which is not great for radio, yeah. but I, I gave an antipsychotic injection to a patient of mine just this week and I photographed the packaging from that yeah, one injection yeah, yeah. and it was just extraordinary there was yeah. paper, there was cardboard, there were syringes and plastic, it was just went on and on and on. But it also was a reminder because we were talking medical student um, that the uh, Melbourne uh, Melbourne University's uh, medical student cohort mm-hmm. uh, this coming week are running their annual conference and I don't think people realise how they sometimes think students are sort of swanning around at the pub and occasionally mm. doing a little bit of work. Mm. 1,200, <laughs> which is what it was like in my day, um, 1,200 medical students have to organise a full four-day conference with all the speakers. They take over the exhibition centre. It's an absolutely massive event, all organised by the students themselves. 1,200. There are 1,200, roughly, medical students in the whole Mel- Melbourne University cohort. So right. It's an enormous and number of students. What sorts of things do they talk about? They cover absolutely everything. So they do they do all the sort of standard medical stuff. They do yeah. sexual health. They're talking about bullying in medicine. They do practical things like placing intercostal catheters. They talk right. about bush medicine, sexual health, environmental health. <laughs> and they have fun things about making your own terrarium. 
Oh, yeah. And cupcake <laughs> decorating. I'll, I'll be going to that one. <laughs> All the essentials. But, but it's an extraordinary effort. So I take my hat off to those students. They've, they've dragged me along for one of their sessions on Monday, which right. takes me away from seeing patients. Um, but it's, it's, it's an extraordinary effort, and I think we need to acknowledge what these students manage. Uh, speaking of medical students, I've just been reading this book called um, This Is Going to Hurt. Have either of you two uh, gents heard about this? Mm, it's, no. it's by Adam Kay, who is an English <laughs> ex-doctor. <laughs> He resigned. It's about his experiences working in the NHS, and uh, this book has been—I think it's won a couple of a couple of awards. It is both incredibly uh, moving, incredibly funny, excoriating, and sad in parts as well about the uh, the National Health Service, um, and uh, uh, that is the medical system in um, in in the UK. And it reminded me a little of my sort of uh, development as a medical student and junior doctor, but nothing like the NHS. I mean, it is just really... I mean, Nick, did you have much experience with the NHS? Well, I trained in the NHS and worked in it for the first six years of my medical career. Um, I was taught when I was a student back in the 70s that it was a a standard experience of the NHS to be permanently in crisis ever since its existence. Crisis was part of its core being. Talking to doctors who currently work in the NHS, Mm. they say... This is a crisis unlike any of the previous. Well, this is this is what this um, this doctor writes about. And uh, look, I wasn't meaning to talk about it today, but it's just still fresh in my mind because he basically um, uh, goes back over his diaries and each uh, the, the little diary entries of you know tonight I saw a pregnant woman who who had preeclampsia and this happened, or I went to the orthopedic ward to see a dehydrated patient and the patient was dehydrated because uh, he was uh, had plasters on both arms and had a glass of water next to his bed. So obviously he couldn't drink. I mean, just ludicrous stories like that. Yeah, one of, I mean, I haven't seen that book, but yeah. it sounds like I should. Yeah. Um, one of the most fascinating things about it is that he was able to sit outside of it <laughs> yeah. and write about it because usually it's the trap of conformity. This is it, and unless you're out of that bubble, you can't do that. And it needs a, a, a certain sort of courage to do that. And also, it's not only courage for others, it's courage for himself and... Um, it's almost therapeutic if you can get it out and play with it in words and then reabsorb it and reintegrate it. Totally. That is so well put, Tom, because I, I actually did a job swap, went back to the UK and worked as a GP in the NHS about 16, 17 years ago for six months. And I went to work with someone who I trained in general practice with, a really lovely, caring GP. <clears throat> and I got to this practice of which she was now one of the principals and I discovered what had happened was that care had disappeared. They were so focused on meeting targets and performance and Mm. computers and all of these things that they had to do around numbers of how many people's blood pressures and kidney function had been tested. They'd forgotten how to look after people. And it was terrifying to see that happen to really good doctors. Mm. Uh, About, uh, I think it was two or three years ago, there was a Francis report on the Mid-Staffs Inquiry. I don't know if either of you had seen that. And it was essentially that. It was how bad things that accumulated over a long period of time. Everyone knew about it but didn't know about it and no one acted and uh, there were a lot of recommendations and I think it's really uh, salient to always be reminded about that. And what you say, Tom, is so true. When you're in the middle of something, it's very hard to see it uh, for what it is, uh, warts and all. Mm. And I think what what Andrew Kay does so well is that he was able to keep a diary at the time and then probably go back over it and then be able to integrate into a, into, into a book as he has. Yeah, and, and it's also a real <coughs> skill to be able to keep the good bits of it because there are a lot of good bits in these things <coughs> and, but still talk about the bits that need to improve because you tend to polarise one, it's all good or it's all yeah. bad and I think there's a real art in finding that middle meaning road. It was always the tragedy I felt the NHS on a per capita basis was one of the cheapest health systems in Europe um, and its model to me is absolutely excellent. The problem is it is grossly chronically underfunded. It always seems if you spend so little per capita on your health care with a system that we know we like, why don't we just spend some more and make it work well? But it is so chronically underfunded. The in- infrastructure is in such bad state. There is no political will to do this because it will take 10, 15 years to turn it around. Of course, no politician thinks in 10 to 15 year timescales. Yeah, look, um, one of the, the, the quotes that, uh, that he talks about is that um, in this book about the NHS is that it's like a, a neighbour who has a, a beautiful vintage car and people from all around the neighbourhood come to look at this vintage car and how you wind it up and isn't it fantastic? doesn't matter that it doesn't drive well, it doesn't have power brakes, there's no airbags, but it's a beautiful car. Uh, breaks down a lot, beautiful car. And he says that's what the NHS is like. You know, everybody goes, ooh, it's fantastic, it's wonderful, but 
to actually drive it is a totally different story. We were going to talk about CMV. We were going to talk about Brainstem. um, uh, uh, I had this an article about dementia in dogs and how you can use stem cells to treat dementia in dogs. But we got caught up talking about other things, and that is the nature of radiotherapy. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You are listening to Radiotherapy. You're with Dr. Malpractice, Dr. Nick, and Associate Professor Tom Kotzenbos. Tom, tell us what you do for a day job. I mean, what, what does your week look like when you actually get into the hospital on a Monday morning? So, essentially, it's looking after patients. It's, uh, it's a full clinical load. Um, I have a, uh, an outpatient um, load where I see uh, people with respiratory conditions, particularly cystic fibrosis patients, and often at the at the more severe end, mm-hmm. people with difficult infections, and then it's managing those patients, managing patients on the ward, and managing a team that uh, mm-hmm. looks after the the the, the whole spread of um, these types of patients. And look, I only found out in the green room that you were you trained as an infectious disease specialist, but then shifted into respiratory medicine. Yeah, I think it's got to do with my temperament. I've got a very <laughs> open temperament and very curious. And I, you know, I grew up in two cultures, so with two languages, and I've, I've always liked things at the edge of what we know. So once I I sort of integrate. A knowledge base or an experience base, I'd look for something extra to yeah. to grow onto it. So, I loved infectious disease. It was at the time when HIV was, um, and again, I fell into that. Was HIV was becoming um, a problem yeah. in the eighties, and uh, I was in the professorial merit medical unit, and we had to think deeply about you know what's actually going on and how do we manage this uncertainty. And I liked all that. And then, having trained in infectious disease, I got into um, more respiratory type infections than I, I liked intensive care and respiratory physiology and then I found myself doing um, some doctoral uh, research work mm-hmm. at the WEHI and then uh, some postdoctoral work overseas and then I came back and was involved with the heart lung transplant unit and then with the cystic fibrosis unit mm-hmm. so they're all interrelated they're all different mm-hmm. but I've always liked the fact that um, there's al- there's a way to uh, grow your both your knowledge and experience base, and and at the same time as uh, hopefully serving our patients, learning a lot from them. Yeah. I, I remember those early days of HIV because I was a junior doctor back in the 80s when we first discovered it and realised what was going on. And I wonder what it was like working in HIV medicine in that period in the 80s where HIV was a death sentence, that awful sense that every time you diagnose this you were saying to someone we have no treatment what was that like for you it was it was very difficult but again i um i embraced the the privilege of being involved in that with very senior clinicians that became my mentors and a lot of it for me came came uh a, a Across in the sense of how do we manage uncertainty, both the uncertainty of what's going on with the patient, because we didn't know a lot, um, also the, our, un, our own uncertainty in terms of how we manage our feelings in terms of these difficult situations, and particularly where I was based then at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, um, those patients weren't the typical gay patients, if you like. So there was a whole lot of uncertainty in terms of how they were... Um, <clears throat> set up in, in, in the social structures. They weren't openly gay. They were doing a whole lot of things, often bisexual, and a, a whole lot of difficult situations that had to be managed. So it was difficult but also very um, growth-stimulating. Now, let's get to the topic at hand, art. Now, uh, you know, when you first told me about this about four years ago, you said, look, I'm, I'm writing a series of papers for the European uh, Respiratory Journal, which is a fairly august uh, mm-hmm. journal, um, about art, and I thought, did I hear that right? Art, art. Look, I'll, I'll just tell the listeners. I, I've got the paper, one of the papers in front of me. You, you, one of your first papers is about uh, uh, you've, you've got a, a Raphael, uh, uh, two two paintings um, as the letter of the article, the School of Athens and Vision of a King, and then you go on to describe what we can learn from that. Now. Obviously, radio is not a visual medium, but if you can imagine a sort of, you know, racist-type picture with lots of people in the foreground, lots of people in the background doing lots of things. Um, tell us what what we can learn from that from that Renaissance period and that artwork. Yeah, I, I, perhaps I'll just uh, 
work into it just with sure. just a few more comments. Sure. Um, if if you look at everything we've just talked about the uh, the NHS, the um, the HIV issues, the the issue, <laughs> the um, the um, way we manage medicine currently and uh, and previously, it's all about how we frame the world. And the world is framed largely by our experiences, our mm-hmm. knowledge base, our cultural um, um, upbringings, sure. all our temperaments. So what fascinated me really early on was um, how, do, how, how the lens we use determines how we see the world. And Raphael basically tried to put it all together in one big masterpiece. Mm-hmm. So he has uh, Plato and Aristotle there in the middle, yeah. and they are classically so opposed in how they are, they think about the world. Plato's all about theory first and then fitting facts into the theory. So very idealistic. And if you look at the picture, he's pointing upwards to the to the oh, eternal. Yes. And whereas Aristotle's exactly, and Aristotle was his student, was yeah. exactly the opposite. So Aristotle point, is pointing downwards and it's all about... Um, observations first and experiments first. Empirical. Empirical, that's right. So if you think about it, they frame everything. Mm. They're polar opposites. And, of course, Socrates is in the middle asking the question all the time, so you're (laughs) never sure because we never get there. But hopefully, like, uh, we asymptotically approach some sort of semblance of truth. And the painting is divided on two sides. So yeah. there's two triangular hierarchies, if you like. So all the empiricists are on Aristotle's side, so the mathematicians, Euclid, measuring the earth, had you know, people that actually observe and then create a model mm. of the world, whereas on, the, on um, Plato's side, it's more the, the philosophical thinkers. Mm. And if you, if you notice, uh, Socrates is there on, just a little bit on Plato's side because Socrates never wrote anything down, of course, but he talked to Plato a lot. And oh, Plato's dialogues are largely so- Socratic thinking in written form. Questions and answers, yeah. yeah. Do you know, um, it's so much of this is old wine and new bottles. When I think of one of the, 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 one of the very um, promulgated theories that we have in psychiatry now is that the, the cognitive behavioural theory and cognitions, that we have a cognitive schema, that we think of the world in a particular way, and this was this sort of came out of research in the, the 50s and 60s, that, you know, human beings have a particular way of seeing the world and we try and fit in facts to that particular schema or we sometimes move the schema to accommodate new facts and you're doing more of one than the other. And that's exactly what this painting talks about. Yeah, beautiful. And the other part of it is... That the, the whole idea of the series, if, you, if, if uh, I know the listeners can't see it, but <laughs> there, there are quotes at the bottom and there's a coupled pe- uh, picture. And essentially the idea was it's not just about each of the bits themselves as well as the writing. It's about how you, they're juxtaposed and the space between them. That's what it's supposed to... It's supposed to excite another another level of thinking and feeling in whoever's seeing it so you can get to your own... Um, higher position, if you like, or different position. And this one in particular... The School of Athens. The School of Athens, yeah. It's all about... The the, the School of Athens Mm. is all about um, how do we think about the world, but the coupling one is what do you do about it, (laughs) which is the vision of the night and the two... and the forked road. Right. Right, so that's sorry. That's the other painting in the in the in that's right. The uh, the series. Oh, right, oh, fascinating. So, so Tom, but while you were becoming an ID physician, were you doing a little degree on the side in fine art and philosophy? I mean, where, where does this come from? I think it comes from uh, a parallel growth as uh, throughout life. I uh, I think having and I mentioned this having two languages immediately sets you up to think about well, what's truth and. Uh, because you can get two histories reported in... It normally sets me up to wonder what the hell the grammar is, but, <laughs> but you go a little bit broader than oh, well, that. Once, once you're fluent in them, you can hear the same history in a completely different way. And then there's the, the cultural overtones and, you know, there's the European view there's the, and, and there's the rest of the world view, if you like. Um, so immediately you start to think, well, there's not one truth. So therefore, once you get your mind around that fairly early, the question is, well, what is the truth? And if you think about it a little bit more, there's not one truth. As, as a, it's all about how do you have constant dialogue so you get to a, an effective truth, a functional truth, so things can be done in the, the most right way at the most right time in the best possible way, if you like. Do you know, you could start up a specialty called postmodern medicine where there are multiple universes with multiple realities and we're just not quite sure which one is the one operating at this particular time. Yeah, well, that's what thinking is. If you think about it, uh, there was a great... uh, One of my favourite philosophers was um, 
or is, sorry, Alfred North Whitehead, who mm. coupled Bertrand Russell and, and wrote a lot about mathematics, but then got very spiritual. And one of his most beautiful sayings is, we kill our ideas so we don't kill ourselves. And each idea is a thought, and each thought is a self. Wow. <laughs> you know, when uh, Nick asked, where did you start uh, getting these ideas from? I was going to start, I was going to say, from your private collection of artwork, but... Uh, uh, yeah, it's not that uh, exotic. Be short on very much. <laughs> I, I, tend to use, I tend to think of museums and uh, what's out there as there for all of us. So well, I, I, there's a little bit of ownership there, maybe. Look, the one or two times we've bumped into each other socially, it's been at the NGV or some other That's exhibition. Right. So That's he right. does get out there and have a look. And, <laughs> um, so there's, there's a whole field of art therapy, um, particularly in psychiatry and psychology. Um, do you have any view about the role of art actually in medicine and in treatment? I think it's... I think it, 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 a lot of it comes down to your definitions. If I have a very broad definition of art, I think it's a wonderful way of approaching the unknown. Really good artists actually produce work. They don't actually know... It's a mixture of intuitive <clears throat> feel, um, crafted, crafted technical capacity. It's all those things. But they, they, they're sort of right. They, they know they're right, but they don't know quite what they're right. And when it's out there, it's amazing. It has its own life. Mm. Other people see it. They graft other ideas onto it, and it becomes an incredible, powerful piece of work, both as cause and effect, if you like. Whereas... At the other end of the spectrum, there's art that's just produced almost as cliché, and that's mm. quite different. It has, a, a, if you like, an aesthetic feel, but that's very different. But to go to the first group, that bit of art where you use it to deal with the unknown, things you don't quite a, a, appreciate very well yet, is very therapeutic because it gives it a packaging that hopefully once you get it to the level of a proper pattern, you can reintegrate it into your rational mind in a useful way. Do you know, I never understood that until I uh, saw a Rothko, uh, which uh, for listeners, again, this is very visual, but it's, uh, they're, they're very striking paintings. They're abstracts in the sort of one colour and then there's often another colour and there's an interface in between. It's that inter- interface in between the two colours which really attracts the eye. And the first time I saw Rothko, I, I felt sort of... Uh, overwhelmed with sadness and I just couldn't why why are two colors making me feel sad Mm. and it was a very common experience for people to look at Rothko and feel sad or happy or elated or or frustrated or angry and that was his intention when he was painting them and it communicates it so much more strongly those emotions than words do um, at at a visceral level and uh, you know as a psychiatrist we're constantly trying to find ways to describe emotions when I think often a painting or a piece of artwork would be so much more evocative. Hmm. I think that's exactly the point. We live in a word universe, yeah. in our rational mind. And uh, as a psychiatrist, you'd appreciate yeah. the left side of our brain is very specialised yeah. for this. As it happens, the right side of the brain is very specialised for exactly the opposite. Yeah. And I think um, if you look at how the, the brain has evolved uh, throughout our history, it, there's, a, there's a very automatic reptilian brain, then there's an emotional limbic brain, and then there's a cortical brain. But the cortical brain is also super specialised. And so the art part, if you like, the pattern forming, linking, thinking, how do I deal with the unknown part, is more linked with, I think, the, the limbic and, the, and the, 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 the older parts of the brain, whereas the rational brain, the bit that we value so much now, is incredibly useful for scientific analysis mm, once mm, you frame mm, the problem, mm. um, is also trapping unless you, you keep yourself open to the other side. You know, one of the things I talk to registrars or trainees and medical students about is the purpose of language or communication. And one of the, the major purposes is for, is, for the, is for us, the individual, to be able to express what is inside, outside to somebody else, and for them to actually empathise or understand it. And it's so hard because words are very blunt instruments in doing that. Oh, exactly. And we, we, half the time we don't even know how we feel, as you were saying with artists, they just paint it. Finding a word to express it's harder and then for somebody to hear it and then understand it's even harder. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's why good artists hardly ever talk about yeah, their yeah. work. <laughs> they let others talk about it because they're not quite sure which yeah, words to use. Yeah, and if you go yeah, to the other yeah. end of the spectrum, those that are wonderfully gifted with words and are incredibly articulate yeah. paint 
word pictures. It's yeah. actually art in a different way. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you look at Shakespeare, the way he paints um, two parts of a, of, a, of a dialogue, two parts of a story, two parts of principled action, it's like a picture. Yeah, you can see it in it's your head. And it's dynamic yeah. and it's yeah. coloured and it's grounded as well as um, upward reaching. It's got all that all those features of a great piece of art, and that's what it is. So, Tom, I hate to be practical about this, but you work with cystic fibrosis, which Mm. is often a really horrible disease. Mm. People get ghastly infections, they get bad lung trouble, they Mm. struggle with it every daily breath. Mm -hmm. Is there a practical way in your work that art helps these people? Have you actually been able to integrate this in any way in your clinical practice? Not in the the direct sense, but it's in more the indirect sense, appreciating the unknown, appreciating what the other person is trying to tell me may not come out in words, appreciating that there's a whole lot of other levels of communication, appreciating that no matter um, how much I I think I know about them, or their disease firstly, I know... It's it, that is framed within the person, and that's framed within a whole larger structure. So it's more about the it's more about the approach, and then using the approach um, at a personal level and at a professional level uh, regarding myself to help them, help me, help them as much as possible, if you like. And is this a, a conversation that you have with patients around this? Is this yeah, something which it, changes how you actually have that clinical interaction? Yes. It, it, where, it, where it's particularly powerful is for the very difficult patients, whether they're difficult HIV patients facing death early on, um, whether they're cystic fibrosis patients Transitioning particularly from the children's hospital to our hospital. And in the early days, all those patients more or less needed a transplant. So those difficult discussions, whether it's difficult patients post-transplant requiring um, a whole lot of medical therapies, it, it helps incredibly just frame the thinking to deal with a whole lot of uncertainties. Um, Tom, let's move to one of my favourite uh, um, genres of art, cubism. Um, my dad was an artist and he, he must have had the world's largest library of Picasso books. I mean, an entire war was covered. He basically wanted to be Picasso. He basically lived like Picasso. He even looked like him. So I grew up with Picasso and Cubism. Tell me, what can we learn from that particular genre into, uh, for our medical practice? Oh, for, for our medical practice? Perhaps one step before that, Picasso was fascinating. It was at the time when... Einstein and all mm. the quantum physicists were doing their things. So at the, at, in one era of 20, 30 years, just at the turn of last century, you had artists and scientists thinking about space and time. And Picasso basically broke it down and then put it together in a particular way, and that's the whole point of cubism. Mm. Braque did the same thing. Picasso got a lot of ideas from a whole lot of other people. But I have no doubt other areas of society and what was going on also touched him whether he knew it or not and Einstein did it in a very mathematical way he broke down space and time in terms of um, the the formulas for relativity Mm. and then we had the whole thing about quantum mechanics and it's if you look at it from our perspective they're so linked at in their perspective at that time they were all doing it and getting there but not quite Picasso Mm. got there in a in a very interesting way compared to um, perhaps the scientists I think the, at, at a medical level, it's again this need to perhaps a good a good analogy would be the issue of specialisation and generalisation. You break things down and put them together again, so you can see them in a different way. Picasso paints something from multiple perspectives, and you see it all in one go. If you look at all our, if you look at our diagnostic tests now, in maybe 150, maybe 50 years ago, we would do one test and get one answer and deal with all the uncertainties. <laughs> yeah. Now we sit at our desk and we get the MRI, we get an, uh, an echocardiogram, we get a whole lot of tests. So if you like, a whole lot of pictures from, of the one patient, mm-hmm. a lot of blood tests, and we put it together. In a way, it's a little bit of cubist diagnostic thinking where space and time have evaporated and we're getting one big massive information and our challenge now isn't a lack of information. It's how we put it together. And if you go back to the Raphael, it's about the choices we make. And that can't be protocolised. I, mean, I just love, I love that image of you sitting at your desk with the ultrasound, the ECG, the MRI, the blood tests, and a Picasso, like, you know, <laughs> um, you know uh, uh, 
painting sort of forming in front of you as you're getting all these different perspectives of the individual. That's mm. just fantastic stuff. And then if you go to contemporary art, just mm. to, to really yeah. extend it, you, you do something. You, do, you, you have the diagnostic, you make a diagnostic dec- and yeah. you decision with all that information yeah. and you do something and you look at the response. Fantastic. Look, we could talk about this for the next five hours. Um, You are listening to Associate Professor Tom Kotsimbos waxing lyrically about art. And my goodness, it's fascinating. Dr. Nick uh, and myself, Dr. Mal Prakas. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Indeed, you are listening to Radio Therapy. Hey, Dr. Nick, I really hope that one of my uh, close friends is listening to the show because she is paranoid about getting cold sores. Like, if, if I offer her a drink from my glass, she will wipe it down with one of those back- antibacterial wipes type of thing. So you're going to put her mind at ease today, aren't you? Well, there are two things that brought this whole herpes virus to my mind to talk about today. One was seeing a, a patient this week who's a lovely woman, um, nearing 60, um, developed a sore which clinically was clearly genital herpes which proved to be the case and she was completely devastated by this piece of information Um, and fortunately by the time we finished she was much less devastated but I was reminded of the importance of this topic by her devastation which is what you're also saying with your friend who's thinking that uh, cold sore virus is some sort of terrifying monster (laughs) but I'm also reminded because of what you said earlier Tom about Shakespeare because, of course, I was browsing through Romeo and Juliet, as one does before bedtime. Um, and who knew that in Romeo and Juliet he references herpes? No way. He does, because there's this speech that Mercutio makes yeah. about Queen Mab. So um, I'm only a Wikipedia expert on this yeah. since in the last 24 hours, but uh, Queen Mab is a sort of uh, slightly malignant fairy character who populates our nighttime fantasies and dreams and that sort of thing. And Mercutio talks about... Queen Mab, this um, fairy character coming when we're asleep and, and where she comes to and, and he says a lady's lips that straight on kisses dream so Queen Mab comes over mm-hmm. the lady's lips and makes them immediately think of being kissed by their lover yeah. um, and, then, and then he goes on to say which oft the angry Mab with blisters plagues <gasps> So the angry Mab, who's this malignant fairy, when you dream of being kissed by your lover, she then gives you herpes. And she does it because their breaths with sweet meats tainted are, because she's jealous because they've eaten candy and so they smell nice and they're appealing. So she gives them herpes. Man! (laughs) Isn't that fantastic? This is why I love Sunday mornings. (laughs) So so it's just a reminder, this virus has been with us forever. It's one one of the only things I remember that was good out of the HIV epidemic that started in the 80s, was suddenly herpes didn't matter. So back in the 80s, when we said people got herpes, then, oh, thank goodness, it's only herpes, mm. not HIV. Mm. One letter difference, HSV, HIV, and they loved it, herpes. But now, of course, herpes has become, it's become this thing which people are terrified of again. Um, what A crucial thing to realise is that there are two types of virus, HIV, HSV1, HSV2, and the classic association is type 1 is more around the mouth, labial herpes. HSV2 is more around the genitals, HSV2 genital herpes, but there is a huge intermingling between the two. And HSV stands for herpes simplex virus. Yeah. Hey, uh, just before you go on, you might be touching on this. Um, why is it called a cold sore on the lips? Is it cold? I mean, is it hot? It would be more hot than cold. So it's, it's, it's related to this idea that when you get another virus, a cold, that the virus tends to break out. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So when there's a level of stress in the system, often with another cold or even the cold weather, when there's stress, it comes out. And it's really interesting because if you think about the art discussion before, it's another way of seeing what's in the body. Now you've stressed the system and it comes out. (laughs) And uh, there's a whole group of these viruses, obviously, and they come out with different stressors. So just... just, um, You're going to get to this, Nick, I know, but we've got a fair amount of time and I, I like to... I like to think of the psychological aspects of this. What about if you're psychologically stressed? Does that bring out um, cold sores? Do we know? I, I think I think it does because essentially our our psychology is very risk, very linked. Sorry to the rest of our body right. autom- autonomically, and um, yeah. so stress hormones yep. are part of the stress. Cortisol, when it goes up, is immunosuppressing. So these viruses need the immune system to hold them in check. 
you, you block the immune system, they come up. They're constantly reactivating at a, such a low level that the immune system is able to control them. So it's very dynamic. Oh. We can't see it. We think they're never there. They're oh. not doing anything, yeah. but they're, they're always there. So there are other viruses, and I know uh, Dr. Nick's going to talk about it later, CMV, for instance, that come up with immunosuppression in post-transplant patients. Oh, they, because they're constantly needing to be checked with those specific immunosuppressants that they suppress a specific part of the immune system and they come up. Yes and no. So I'm going to furiously, Ooh. furiously Ooh. take issue with that because while stress certainly can be an element in it, the overwhelming majority of cold sore and gentle herpes outbreaks occur in completely healthy people when they are not stressed. Ooh. And the danger of blaming it on stress is people think I'm somehow responsible for my cold oh. sore or my viral outbreak. So we have to be a little bit cautious about stress. I completely agree it can be an issue. Yeah. But we, we see because there is exactly as you're talking about, Dr Tom, there is this, there's this symbiosis between our immune system and the virus activity. But that can wax and wane sure, sure, sure. completely independently of stress. So, Dr Mal, now we're, we're getting very Aristotelian. We have a thesis, <laughs> we have an, an antithesis... And we need a synthesis. Okay. <laughs> so how would you know, Dr Nick, whether they're stressed? If I put it to you, the very fact that they've cut, the virus has come up is a sign of a stress that we can't detect. And this is exactly... It, it becomes definitional. But this is exactly the dangerous message, which I don't want to squash right here and now, because that's telling people every time I got my herpes, somehow that means I'm stressed. Mm, mm. In real practical clinical life for someone who sees herpes outbreaks, both label and gentle all the time in my patients. Yeah. Yes, they can be stress-related. Most commonly, they're in healthy people, and it just happens. Anyhow, moving on. The, we'll move on. The, the, <laughs> thing I think, the thing I think your friend needs to know, which yeah. is so, so important, is just how common these viruses right. are out in yeah. the community. So if you... And there are lots and lots of ways this is studied. They can be done by swabs and blood tests and so on. But if you just talk in general terms, something like... 70 to 80% of the adult population in pretty much every country you look at will have or have had the cold sore virus type 1, the one that comes around your mouth. So, so the majority of adults have had this virus. So there's an 80% chance my friend has had this virus. Correct. Now, that doesn't mean everybody gets recurrent cold sores, but this virus is ubiquitous and most adults will have had this virus and, in fact, probably have it living in their spinal cord, sitting quite quietly, happily sitting there. So we know that a, the majority of adults okay. in pretty much every, have the type 1 cold sore virus. When we talk about the genital herpes virus, type right. 2, and remembering it can be in either place, but the type 2 virus is less common, but even with the type 2, depending on which studies you look at, which country, it's actually more common in women than men, roughly twice as common, um, but the infection rate is anywhere around about 15-20% in women and around about 8-12% in men. Oh, These oh, are oh. sexually active adult people. Okay, so let me just unpack that. So 12% of men... Roughly. Roughly. Yeah, 12%, yeah. 12% have had this virus? Have met the virus and, and presumably still have it. They don't necessarily experience regular episodes. Can they pass it on to somebody if... Uh, if they've had that 12%, will that 12% pass it on to somebody else? So, so this is the question of can you actually pass on this virus even though you don't have rampant cold sore or blistered right, yeah, lesions yeah, on yeah, your yeah. genitals? And the answer is yes, you can. Oh, so that's going to cause my friend to worry more now. So it's a condition called silent shedding. You don't have to have rampant open sores or blisters. When you've got those, there's virus everywhere. I right. mean, those blisters are just a little virus factory. factory yeah. them. Those are the ones we swab and prove that someone has it. Uh, but in between times, we know that something like 70% of people who have a, a swab taken from their genitals on a daily basis, 70% of those people who've ever had the virus will have virus on a swab at some point in a month, even though they have no sores. So we know that that virus just lives around our mucosal surfaces. Right. Yeah, uh, Is that Nick, where it lives? Yeah, in the... Yep, Dr Nick's exactly right. And I just wanted to make two extra points perhaps, and I think you did touch on it earlier. These viruses have co-evolved with us over a long, long period of time. And the second bit is it's a very dynamic interplay between them reactivating a bit more and us and our bodies feel like controlling them. 
So, so herpes virus does that sort of just like has, has a bit of a nap in your mucosa? What is it? No, it, it actually lives in the in the spinal cord in what's called the dorsal root ganglia. Go and look that up. Um, it lives it, in my spinal cord. It does. It's it's nesting there, and it lives there because it knows very clever little creature. This virus it knows our immune system is not going to attack our spinal cord. So oh, it the blood brain barrier. So it sits there very oh. quietly, happy. <laughs> I'm safe here, Bali. You know, can't get me. Um, but then when the, but then when it wants to, it decides I'll have a little wander down the nerves and to infect the skin, and that's where you get the outbreak. And that outbreak could be pretty much anywhere, whether it's the lips, the genitals, it can be buttocks, it can be thigh. Depends where it decides to come out, where it wants a holiday. So you go ahead. So these viruses have learned exactly that. They've, they've, in evolutionary terms, they've gone to the places where we can't control them. So same with zoster. In, in, in the same shingles. sort of area, shingles, shingles yeah. yes, and other viruses similar. Yeah. So the message really to people is don't be so scared of herpes. I always say about genital herpes, it's just a cold sore that not so many people see. Uh, right, but and do we get so terrified of cold sores? Well, your friend does, <laughs> but most people are not so terrified yeah. of the labial herpes cold sores. Yeah. Oh, it's just a cold sore. Yeah. But somehow genital herpes has this terrifying implication. Let's be clear about genital herpes and cold sore virus on the lips. It really does absolutely nothing else other than cause cold sores and genital sores. The only significant concern that we have is when a woman who's pregnant has never ever met this virus before mm. and if she gets a first episode of genital herpes mm. late in pregnancy she has no immunity to pass on to a baby the virus is there ah, right. the baby can get infected and get neonatal herpes and that can be very dangerous so the message really to women is don't get genital herpes while you're pregnant but if you're going to get it get it well before you get pregnant right get your right. body used to it get the antibodies there live in harmony with your herpes and then your baby's safe um but that's not to discount that it can be very painful it's uh, obviously the there are sores that you can get in the genital area particularly if they're recurrent that can be painful they can disrupt sexual life and this is a very complicated area for particularly for single people what do i do about oh my god i've been told i've got genital herpes how do i deal with this mm. question with new partners my advice to people is to say we know from all the studies that silent shedding of these viruses by people who don't even know they've got it is really common so we've just got to assume this virus is out there. With new partners, we should be using condoms mm. anyway. Mm. Mm. It's not perfect protection, but reduces infectivity risk from herpes virus by at least 50%, possibly more. So we should be using condoms with new partners. My view is if you've got a clinical diagnosis of genital herpes, I don't believe you have to have that conversation first up before the first episode of sexual intercourse with a new partner because we know that this is such a common virus. Chances are that person's got it themselves. They may not even know it. We need to assume that virus is out there. Take the sensible precautions. If you've got a rampant sore, say, oh, not tonight, darling. I've got a headache or whatever. If you don't have a rampant sore, let's use condoms. If you're getting to the point where you want to chuck away the condoms, then we have to have the conversation. Dr. Nick, I was going to just make the point. We're very much focused on the biology of it, but the social cultural conditioning of what it means to have this particularly genital herpes is um, maybe something we can't just push away <laughs> so so one of the things i believe is that we need to we need to kind of destigmatize because mm. there is this sense oh you know what's this about that's why it's so important people understand how common this is mm. and it is to me again i repeat it is just a cold sore that not so many people have and not so many people see. Hey, Nick, can you, can you, can one transmit, like, you know, you've got HSV, herpes simplex virus one on your lips and it's herpes simplex virus two on your gonads. Can, can you, like, if somebody has oral sex with a cold sore, does that transmit it genitally? So when we look at the rate of HSV1, the mouth cold sore virus, yeah. in the genital region, it is rising quite considerably. Right. And when we look at genital herpes in younger people, these days the majority of it, funny enough, is HSV1. So we know... Because of sexual practices? Because changed? of sexual, yeah. yeah. So if you do, if you do swabs from uh, people over the age of 50 who have genital herpes, over 80% of that genital herpes is type 2, in younger people, it switches around about 70%. It's a generational difference. So 
generational difference. And what about... I mean, I... I um, in a practical sense, it doesn't really matter that much because they're so similar, the viruses. The right. effects are not that different. It can also go to other areas as well. I mean, apart from the fetus, as you talked about, but it can get into the eyes, can't it, which, which causes problems? So how do you... Is that right? I, yeah, I, yeah. It's a virus that can go, can go anywhere. I've seen herpes on the forehead and on the forearm. It can get into really? things that matter, like eyes and brains. So, yes, it can certainly get other places. So do you have to have, take special precautions when you have an open lesion? Do you sort of, you know, make sure you don't touch your cold sore and then your eye? Or So it, because if you've already got the virus, you have a certain degree of immunity, it is much harder to auto-inoculate, if you like, so to give yourself the same virus in another site. But it's not impossible. Right. So if suppose you've got a genital sore, just oozing virus, and you happen not to wash your hands after going to the toilet, and then you think, oh, I've got an itch in the eye, give it a good old rub, yeah. you could give yourself herpes right. in the eye. So it's a little bit of sensible hygiene precaution would be wise. Yes. We should also mention we've got good treatments now, very good antivirals to help. <laughs> so just to... to we're, 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 building that picture. we're building the drama, Tom. Because <laughs> it, it can sound quite uh, dramatic. Yeah. And, and, and that's such an important point, moving on to what do we do about treatment? And there are antiviral drugs which are really effective and they can be taken either intermittently, people get that tingling, the prodrome, so-called, heralding, oh, I've got that feeling I might get the sore, mm-hmm. to start taking the drug just short-term to try and stop that outbreak. People who get regular outbreaks um, and find that very intrusive for their sexual life or just because of pain, um, then they can take the drug on a regular base, basis as a suppressive therapy. And these medications are incredibly safe. Right. Is that um, You take them uh, orally and also topically? You can put them on the sores and also... Frankly, the topical stuff is pretty useless. It's the, it's the tablets that actually work. Right. Yeah. And you have to see a, a doctor to get the tablets or can you get them over the counter? Yeah, there are there's short courses you can buy over the counter, but really right. in terms of suppressing genital herpes, you need longer courses and higher doses and you want to get a prescription because it's going to get very expensive otherwise. Right. <laughs> the big news on everyone's lips is the, uh, the vaccine for herpes. Do you, is there, I remember reading years ago that there were trials for a vaccine. Has that come to fruition? Is that around? I'm looking, uh, I'm looking at Tom. Because, <laughs> well, certainly for other DNA viruses, yeah, like papilloma yeah. viruses and so on, where, which are sort of in the same area. Yeah. But herpes virus vaccine, no, I haven't heard. Really? Well, Maybe I'm making it up. I, I, but, I do, but, I want to, but in terms of treatment, because people attempt to say, oh, great, I'll go and get the drugs, there's a... I've been trying to find an answer to this, and I'll see if Tom knows the answer to this. I've always had a concern that if we take suppressive therapy for the virus over a long period of time, all we're doing is then weakening our own immune response, and we're kind of delaying the episodes that inevitably we have to have, because mm. if we need to think about this symbiosis, that our body lives in harmony with this virus. If we dis- suppress it artificially for too long, is it all that we're doing is then delaying our episodes? I couldn't find any research on this. Tom, do you happen to know? I think, I think Nietzsche might be able to help you. If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. <laughs> so essentially when the viruses reactivate, that's how our immune system uh, gets boosted because that's what brings it under control. So I think if you keep it under chronic... If the virus are reactivating so much, you haven't got that immune control. So that's the time to use the antivirals. But if you use them in the setting where your immune system is pretty good, that would be a potential risk, exactly how you paint it out. So, to, so, so my advice usually to patients is you do not take this drug long-term just for the sake of it. Exactly. If, if your episodes are relatively infrequent, if your sexual life is such that you can manage it, you're much better off developing our natural biological harmony with this virus because we know that as people get older, they get fewer episodes. I don't see too many 60, 70, 80-year-olds with rampant problems with genital mm. herpes mm. because they're, they've, they've become this, this sort of uh, almost biological feedback loop which is relatively okay. They've learned to live with each other. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting area in medicine where the DNA viruses, herpes, but also some other DNA viruses, because they constantly tend to reactivate, they dominate your immune T-cell pool, T-cells being one of the immune cells mm. that control these viruses. So as, as you've just said... As they reactivate, that pool becomes stronger and stronger. New T cells aren't made as much, so they dominate. So they don't reactivate as much, which is quite an interesting um, phenomenon. So it's like they go to gym, they're working out, they get stronger. That's right. I've just done some research about uh, the herpes simplex vaccine. And um, the, just like, please tell us <laughs> um, trials that look so promising in 2017, according to uh, 
to uh, the internet have fizzled. So a couple of companies were looking at doing a, a herpes uh, vaccine. So the, um, so the vaccine that is, because the, as Tom mentioned, the varicella zoster virus, which is the thing that causes chicken pox and subsequently shingles, uh, we do have a vaccine both for kids to prevent uh, chicken pox and we have a vaccine to reduce the risk of shingles in older people uh, and that virus is another one of the herpes family. Now, whilst I've got both of you here talking about <laughs> herpes zoster which is chickenpox slash shingles yeah same mm. virus yes um does the zoster vaccine that you get as a kid or that you can have as a kid does that confer lifelong immunity or does it we not? don't does it, we don't know i don't want to hear that answer no I'm but it's true there is no vaccine that's better than a real infection that's in, in conferring immunity in conferring immunity, yeah. exactly. And the, but the problem is, if you wait for everyone to have an infection, a small proportion of people will get very sick, and yeah. and and some will obviously may may mm. may die. But there is no vaccine that's as good as a natural infection. So if you've had the natural infection, um, that will give you the best immunity, and we know in that model some will reactivate. So I would suggest probably not, but I don't have the evidence. <laughs> Yeah, so, that, so one of the reasons we want to try and prevent um, chickenpox in kids is yeah, because we dangerous. know that those kids will... Well, it can be dangerous, yeah. but also they'll live with that virus for the rest of their lives. And, in fact, reactivation as shingles later in life is very, very common. And shingles is a very debilitating disease. So one of the reasons we vaccinate the kids is not just to protect them against a serious disease in childhood, but also hopefully to prevent them becoming infected with this virus and reduce the risk of them developing shingles later in life. Is there a recurrence of shingles? My, my mother, who is sort of the font of all medical information for me, over Friday night dinner was telling me that uh, there's a lot more shingles around than there used to be. Is that true? Nope, it's not more of it. It, is, it has always been common. Recurrent shingles is really rare. You can get second episodes of shingles, but it's really uncommon. But nearly everybody I see who says, oh, I get recurrent shingles, they've actually got herpes simplex. I wouldn't argue with your mother. <laughs> Probably the best advice I've heard all this morning. Uh, <laughs> said, it could only be said by a European. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic stuff. I've actually learned so much this morning. I really do love Sunday mornings coming into the studio, um, listening to really smart people talk about stuff I thought I knew, but actually it turns out I don't know. I'm getting a whole new perspective on it. Fantastic stuff. Thank you so, so much. We've also got to point out that Nurse EpiPen, who is a stalwart of radiotherapy and my co-host and has been for a couple of years and is such a great presence. She is currently touring um, Africa uh, with her family and has sent some fantastic pictures, which we will try and figure out a way of putting up onto uh, our Facebook page for uh, radiotherapy, with her permission, of course. You have been listening to Dr. Malpractice. That's me, Dr. Nick, GP extraordinaire, Associate Professor Tom Kotsimbos, who knows pretty much everything there is to know about art and medicine. And you should set up a whole new specialty, art and medicine, uh, at uh, Monash University. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.